Father, I pray that you would give me the strength to deliver your word this morning, and I pray that you would be here by your Holy Spirit to bring your word alive, to bring it alive in our hearts, and to transform us to be like your son Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. 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 If you've been coming to Incarnation on <coughs> Sunday mornings, you'll know that we just finished a sermon series in 1 John. And uh, if we had to give 1 John a title, the whole letter a title, we might have called it the Epistle of Love, right? Because it talks about love more than any other book in the New Testament. Uh, it talks about what it means to love God and to love our neighbor, which Jesus said was the greatest commandment in the law. And this morning, um, we're following the lectionary of our church, the assigned readings for all the Anglican churches in the country. Um, and up this week comes Leviticus chapter 19, the part of the law of Moses where God said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I think the Lord clearly wants us to linger here on this theme of love for just a little bit longer um, and look at this command in its original context in Leviticus. Now, I'll be honest, the idea of preaching out of Leviticus didn't excite me very much. <laughs> and I didn't expect, after three months of studying First John, that the law of Moses would have anything else to teach me about love. Or that the law would make this difficult command any easier. But I was wrong on both counts. Leviticus surprised me. Um, and I hope that as we open it together this morning, that it's going to surprise you too. So find a Bible, uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 19. It's one of the five books of Moses at the beginning of the Bible. And chapter 19 is on page 97 of our church Bibles. Leviticus chapter 19. So verse 1 of Leviticus 19 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So this is a high standard. It's such a big command. This is what our whole lives with God are heading toward. This is the goal. The goal is that we become like God, holy, <clears throat> because he is holy. And God told Moses here that this word was for all the congregation. So not just the priests or the leaders, but everyone. God says to everyone, be holy because I am holy. And that means all of us too. Peter said that very clearly when he wrote to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. He said, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He quotes Leviticus 19. So the goal of our life with God is to become like God. And most importantly, like him in his holiness. And now turn over the page in Leviticus 19 and find verse 18. It says there at the end of the paragraph, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see it there? Mm -hmm. That there in Leviticus chapter 19 is the heart of the whole law. Love God and love your neighbor. No other commandments are greater than these. So we see right here in the heart of the law that the goal of the law is holiness. And that holiness looks like love. 
And that should all sound very familiar because that's exactly what John said over and over again in the letter of 1 John. That holiness is an essential part of life with God and love is an essential part of holiness. We're not saved because of our own holiness, but we are saved for holiness. Mm -hmm. Now this idea of holiness and even the idea of love might sound a bit abstract, a bit theoretical and far away and hard to reach. But here, when we, when we examine God's law, we find that both holiness and love are extremely practical. Sorry. They're things that ordinary people can do as part of their ordinary lives. Mm-hmm. Holiness and love are things that are found in the midst of earthy activities, like farming and talking to friends and negotiating with irritating neighbors. Mm-hmm. They're things that are nearby and very much within reach. So today we're going to look at three things that the law teaches us about love. Uh, First, it shows us what love does when it has the advantage. Second, what love does about conflict. And third, what love does for the sake of the poor. So first, what does love do when it has the advantage? We're going to jump right into the middle of this chapter at verse 11, and then a bit later on we'll come back and look at the earlier verses. So in verse 11, God says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Okay, so there are lots of commands in here, and they cover a wide range of situations, but they all have one thing in common, that the person who's being commanded has the advantage, right? So there's a situation with a weak person and a strong person, and the command of the law is directed to the strong person. Because if you're tempted to steal, then you can see that you have an advantage over someone else's property, an opportunity. If you're tempted to deal falsely, then you have an advantage over their confidence. The oppressor has the advantage over the oppressed. The person who hires workers has the advantage over the people who are hired. The hearing man has the advantage over the deaf man and the seeing man over the blind man. So in all these situations, the law addresses the person who has the advantage and they all teach the same lesson, that love never takes advantage. It never seizes upon an opportunity to exploit another person's weakness, not for gain or for position or for laughs or for any other reason. Love never does that. And to do that in any way is a total breach of holiness. It's a complete opposite of the character of God. And it forgets to fear God. Verse 14 says, you won't do any of these things because you shall fear your God. What does it mean? It means that God's going to see. Even if no one else could possibly see what you did or ever know about it, God will see. And it means God will care. However small a thing it might seem to us to take advantage over someone else's weakness, it's always a big deal to God. Because that person is a person that he made, that he loves, and to insult them is to insult him. And it means that God will act. If God never did anything in response, there would not be any need for anyone to fear him. But God promises that in the end he will act. 
He will make it right. And that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Mm-hmm. So it is with God in mind that we guard the interests of our neighbor. Mm-hmm. We look at the forlorn and maybe even ridiculous person in front of us, but standing behind him in all his weakness, we see God in all his strength. So I encourage us all to ask ourselves, over whom in my life do I hold the advantage? Perhaps it's over someone at school who's ugly or clumsy or says dumb things and doesn't have any friends. Ask yourself, do I ever take advantage of their weakness and make fun of them behind their back? Do I use their weakness as a lever to advance my own popularity with my friends? Or perhaps I have an advantage over other members of my own family because I have a stronger position in the family or better health or a stronger personality. We must ask if we turn that advantage to our own gain. Do I demand from them the things I need while being reluctant to provide what they need? Or perhaps I have an advantage over someone who works for me. I I, I get to tell them what to do and how long to work and how and when they'll be paid. We must ask, do I in any way exploit my employees or treat them unfairly? Would God approve of the way I deal with his children? Because I know that I will answer to him in the end. And his call on my life is holiness. And holiness looks like love. And love never takes advantage. If you want to really measure somebody and see their true character, their true face, look at what they do in a relationship where they hold all the power and they think no one is looking. They think they can really get away with it. A spiteful, selfish person who does not fear God will always, always take advantage of that situation when it comes. Mm. And there really are only two reasons not to. Two, Two that exist in the world, and they're love and the fear of God. If you've ever seen the TV show Suits, then uh, the character of Lewis Litt is a perfect example of this. Uh, Lewis Litt, when, when you see him with his peers, with the other lawyers in his firm, or with his superiors, he can seem like a pretty decent guy, a competent guy and even a kind guy. But then you put him in a room with his underlings, with his secretary or the interns who work for him, and he instantly transforms into a tyrant and a monster. And you realize that's his true face. And and that's that's true in life too. We see how much love someone has and what they're truly like by what they do when they have the advantage. Love never takes advantage. Now second, what does love do about conflict? Leviticus chapter 19 deals with both public and private conflict. And we've said that this whole chapter is speaking to people that it's calling to be holy It's commanding to be loving. But nevertheless, there's going to be conflict. Conflict is inevitable. The law assumes that conflict is going to happen between brothers and neighbors. But it also says that there's a loving way to handle it. Verse 15 is about public conflict. It's about disputes in the courts. And it says about those that you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And I think this is something we all agree on and even maybe find obvious, so I don't want to spend much time here. 
But I do want to note in passing that this kind of impartial justice was obvious to no one on earth before God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. Humanity did not invent this. We received it from the God of love. And our legal system today is built on this verse. To the degree that it works and comes close to this standard, we have no one but God himself to thank. And I know it doesn't always work, but then we know that every decision our courts make goes to God on appeal. Everyone. Mm. He's not just the king of kings, mm. he's the judge of judges. That's right. And he will hold all our human courts to account. So that's all I want to say about public conflict, but I want to spend more time on private conflict because that's where most of us live. Verse 16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here in all these situations, the situation is one of private conflict. Uh, Some person you know, the neighbor, has done something to offend you. Maybe it's something very serious, like stealing from you, or maybe something that's just annoying, like playing his music too loud. Um, But whatever it is, there's a private conflict, and there's a choice to be made about how we respond to it. And the Lord talks about three bad ways to respond to that conflict, three unloving and unholy ways And there's only one right way, one way that's loving. So Sarah taught all this to the children, but I'll remind you, uh, the three bad ways are storing up hatred in your heart, spreading slander about the person with your mouth, and taking some sort of vengeance, Sarah said, with your fist. Um, Okay, so imagine this scenario in suburban America. There's a man who lives down the street from your house, and he takes his dog for a walk every day, and he walks past your house. And several times a month, his dog poops in your yard. And the owner never clears it up. He just leaves it there. And uh, your children go out and play in the yard, and they step in it, and they track dog poop all over your house. You have a complaint against your neighbor, right? So uh, what are you going to do about it? How many of us here would do nothing, would say nothing, and just quietly hate that guy in our hearts? (laughs) Uh, maybe we built a better fence so his dog couldn't get in, but essentially we just stay mad at the guy. Uh, verse 17 says, that's not allowed. Then how many of us would tell the story to our friends mm-hmm. or to our hairdresser? There's this guy down the street who never cleans up after his dog and he's driving me crazy. In the words of verse 16, we would then be going around as a slanderer. That word can also be translated a tale-bearer, an informer, a scandal-monger, a gossip, or a revealer of secrets. How many of us would that title apply to? Or how many of us would take door number three and seek some kind of vengeance? Maybe the passive-aggressive kind, like giving him the cold shoulder when you meet him in the street and returning his friendly way with a glare. Um, Or maybe the actively aggressive kind, like keying his car, uh, or sending your kids around to poop in his yard. (laughs) Are any of us strangers to this kind of behavior? God talked about this at Mount Sinai 3,300 years ago. 
There are three unkind, unloving, and unprofitable ways to deal with private conflict. And did any of us not choose one of those three? And there's only one way that's holy and loving, and that's in verse 17. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. God says, you've got to go talk to him. How many of us have ever responded to a neighborhood problem by going to talk to the person about it? I guess that most of us would struggle to think of one time. But God's right, isn't he? That's the only way. If we don't take the problem to the person involved, then we must, must do one of the other three things. We must hate them or slander them or take our own vengeance. So conflict's going to happen, and holy people have got to talk about it. Go to the person who offended you and rebuke them. It feels like the least loving way but it turns out to be the only loving way. Mm -hmm. This is the solution that the God of love prescribes. Jesus had to repeat it when he came. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and confront him. No one likes to do this, but if we're going to be holy, we've got to go. So that's what love does when it has the advantage and what love does about conflict. Now, what does love do for the sake of the poor? And I left this part to last because it gives us the most to think about, but it comes first in the passage that was assigned for today. So look at Leviticus 19, verse 9. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So if the first situation that we looked at was love in the arena of power and advantage, and the second was love in the arena of conflict, then this is love in the arena of work. These are situations of business and profit. This law was given before anyone in Israel had any land of their own. They were still out in the desert, camping out in the wilderness. But later on, they would be given a land, a country of their own. And every tribe, except the tribe of Levi, would be given its own allotment of that land. And each family in the tribe had its own farm. And they worked on their farms to grow their own food. So this law was speaking to an agrarian society, a culture where farming was the main work of most of the people, and where for most families, their land and what it produced was the sum of all their wealth. The poor in this economy were the people who had no land. And the sojourners, the traveling non-Israelite strangers who were staying within Israel's borders, were at a similar disadvantage in that they had no land. And so in the law, the people who have land and are able to grow a harvest are commanded to leave some of that harvest behind for the sake of the landless poor and the sojourners. So when they went out to harvest, they would have a team of workers cutting down their fields and gathering the crops into bundles, but they would stop cutting before they got to the end of the field. They would leave a margin, an unharvested strip. And anything that they dropped along the way, they would also leave behind on the ground. Those dropped pieces are called the gleanings. And any sensible farmer in the ancient world would have a second team of harvesters following behind the first team to pick up the gleanings that the first team dropped because that was valuable food. But God told Israelite farmers, don't send out the second team. Leave the gleanings behind for the poor and the sojourner. 
Now, we know at least one faithful Israelite who obeyed this law to the letter. Boaz, in the book of Ruth, he was a landowner who left the edges of his field and the gleanings of his harvest for the poor. So that's where the poor went at harvest time, to Boaz's field, to collect what he had left for them. And Ruth herself was one of those poor people. She was a sojourner from the land of Moab. And because Boaz obeyed the law, she had food to eat and didn't starve. And because of this law, she met Boaz and ended up becoming his wife. And Ruth and Boaz were the grandparents of King David. So Israel was given David and the world was given Jesus because Boaz kept this law about not harvesting right to the edge of his field. See what blessing love and holiness can bring into the world. Um, And there's a similar law in Leviticus 19 about grapevines. It says to leave some grapes up there when you harvest. And not to collect the grapes that fall on the ground, but to leave them for the poor and the sojourner. Mm. So here are two beautiful illustrations of love in action in the area of work. Would keeping these commands be costly to the farmers? Yes, a little bit. Would it cut into their take-home profits? Yes, absolutely. Would it help the poor? Yes, a great deal. It helps the poor not only because it gives them food, but also because it gives them work. It gives them a role, a job to do, to go out and get that food. It meets their actual need. Mm-hmm. Now, even at the time the law was being given, these commands were seen as obviously just illustrations of the big idea. That's not the limit of the law. It's only two examples. The law only talks about crops and grapes. But if you're an olive farmer and you grow olives, are you going to ignore it? <laughs> no. You're going to do the same with your olive tree, aren't you? And what about orchards full of fruit? Yes, of course it still applies to those. But then what if you weren't a farmer at all, but you were a blacksmith or a carpenter or a cloth merchant? Then you would find a way to put that same principle into practice, that a portion of my trade goes to the poor for the sake of the Lord our God. Amen. It's for God's sake because God loves and cares about the poor. And we can't claim to be holy and to be like God if we have no love for the poor. And love will look for simple and practical ways to provide for the need. God fights for the poor because he knows that no one else will. And he gave laws to Israel that made care for the poor everyone's responsibility. And that was something no other nation had ever done before. The idea was truly radical, and it truly changed the world. The idea that everyone, small and great, is important to God and deserves to be cared for. So I think we can see why these laws about harvesting were good laws. They set God's people apart as holy, and they were practical expressions of love. And today they give us a lot to think about, because these examples are a long way from our own experience and a long way from where we live. Hardly any of us farm at all. And even if we do, and if we left a portion of our farm unharvested, what good would that do? Nobody would come and get it, and it would rot on the ground and do no one any good. So obeying this law literally in our context would be nonsense. We must ask, what can we do instead? How could I leave margin around the harvest of my life that will meaningfully bless the neediest people in the city? That's got to be the question that love asks. And there are so many possible answers. This law should feel exciting. It should inspire our creativity. I can be holy through doing this. 
I can be more like God. I can put into practice the command to love my neighbor as myself. And I can do it right here where I am and through what I already have. So um, here are some of the examples that I've seen. A dentist that went to our uh, church in Jacksonville saw a certain number of clients for free every year. He fixed the teeth of a number of poor and even homeless people who could never afford it. We also knew a mum who had a son in high school, and her son had a friend at school who was essentially homeless, so she made two packed lunches every day for years, one for her own son and one for his friend. We've known families who make it a habit to set an extra place at the dinner table and cook enough food so that they can always receive a guest at a moment's notice. And when they started doing that, they were amazed at who the Lord brought to their door. So what is it that you already do, and how could you use the overflow of that work to provide for people in need? One thing we might all need to do is to create margin in our time. None of this kind of love can happen if we're too busy to notice anyone else's need and too busy to stop and do anything if we did see it. Frantic hurry robs us of God's most precious gifts of holiness and love. So if you're too busy to be interrupted by a stranger's need, then you're too busy. And the margin you might need to leave around your life is in your time. So um, we were, Sarah and I were talking about this passage this week, and um, on the day we were talking about it, she went to the post office, and there wasn't too much of a line, and she was a bit late for school, and the person at the front counter of the post office was chatting to the person who was in front of the line, like two people ahead of her. Um, and Sarah fi- found herself getting progressively more angry. Um, she, I didn't get her permission to tell the story. Um, <laughs> 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 And feeling like, girl, I've got to get my kids from school. Why are they they chatting? They should be getting on with the next person. And then she realized that the conversation they were having was um, about this new job that the person had. And what a great encouragement it was going to be that anybody took an interest in this new job. And Sarah realized that she'd been prioritizing time over love. And that what this person at the front of the post office was doing was an act of love. Um, And I, I I felt very challenged by that too. Hurry can rob us of our um, personal interest in people um, and our love for them. I also want to give you one example of margin principle in the corporate <coughs> world. Um, so the home improvement store Lowe's has a community responsibility program called Give Back Time. They encourage all their employees to donate time to programs like Habitat for Humanity, which builds homes for low-income families. And while they do it, Lowe's will donate their salaries for these hours to charities of their choice. And Lowe's reports that in 2017, they donated $39 million to community investment. And this seems to me to be such a great program and a good modern illustration of the principle of not harvesting right to the edges of your field and using what you have to provide for the poor. And there are lots of other companies that have programs like this. And I think it's just such a good thing. Whether Lowe's does this out of the fear of the Lord or not, I don't really know. Uh, Maybe they do. But in one way or another, the principle comes straight down from Mount Sinai. The foundation stone of one of those houses that they build could read, 1312 BC, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So contrary to what we might have expected, the law of Moses still has a lot to teach us about love. God called us to be like him. He said, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And essential to that holiness is that we're like him in his love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law brings these high and lofty commands down to earth, to the place where we actually live. Love and holiness are not things that are far off and out of your reach, but instead they can be found in the simple human activities of farming and talking to friends and negotiating with irritating neighbours. So let's take the time this week to think creatively about how we can apply this law of love in our own hearts. Because he has rescued us, and he has commanded us, and because he is the Lord our God. Amen. Amen.